Well, good morning. I'm really glad to be with you again today. <clears throat> it's been a joy for my family to get to know the Riverstone Church family the last couple of months. I was warmly encouraged the last few times that I preached uh, by many of you who came up and introduced yourselves to me afterwards and got, I got to know your families a little bit, so that was a nice connecting point for me and my family. Uh, let me just take a moment and indulge and share my family with you. Um, I'm going to put them up on the, the screen here. Uh, this is my four kids and my wife. My wife is the uh, older looking one, kind of in the middle there. Um, Chelsea is my oldest. She's 10 years old, going on 16. And uh, Nathan is in the background there. He's my eight-year-old boy. Micah is my five-year-old. And uh, Adam is our terrible two. So Janice and I have been married for a little over 15 years now. We met in high school. And we are high school sweethearts. We, we started dating in high school. And we dated all throughout college. Got married three weeks after I graduated. I did not waste any time. Um, as a, as a college professor, I speak with many students that are in this age of life where they are kind of looking for their, uh, not just their BS in Bible, but their MRS in life, if you know what I mean. Um, and I sometimes I'm asked, how do I know that I've found the one? How do I know what to look for in a spouse? When, when, when can I be sure of that? And it's a great question. It's a question that can, can make or break literally the rest of our lives. Some of you might be old enough to remember uh, there's an old Jimmy Soul song that goes like this, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. Uh, so from my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. Now, I, I'm not old enough to remember that song, but I am old enough to remember my father walking around the house singing that song. And for some reason, my mom was always offended when he did hum that tune, right? But I'm happy to say that I did not take the advice from Jimmy Soul, and I'm still a happy man. I, I chose well. Janice and I have a great relationship, uh, but the question of who you marry is a big one. There are a lot of factors that go into making the right choice. For me, I knew Janice was right for me uh, when one day, about six months into the relationship, I realized she was still laughing at my jokes. That was, a, that was a great sign for my future. We still had fun together. We still laughed and enjoyed our time together. She loved Jesus. She enjoyed doing ministry with me. Uh, whenever we got into an argument, and we did get into arguments, we resolved them quickly. They were forgiven. They were, we, were moved, we moved on from them very quickly. She loved my family. They liked her. I mean, it was a, it was a great thing. For some of you, 15 years is just a drop in the bucket compared to your marriage. Uh, for others, everything I just said was painful because perhaps you rushed into something and uh, maybe you've experienced pain in your marriage. It has not been a good couple of years for you. I'm not here today to talk about marriage. Well, we are going to talk a little bit about marriage, just a bit, just in the beginning, because there's a major marriage crisis that sets off the text that we're going to study today. Whether you've experienced a painful marriage, like the people, most of the Israelites in the text that we're going to read, or whether you've been involved in a much more pleasant experience, there's something here for you, because our focus today is not going to be on marriage. We'll start there, but we won't end there. Are you with me? All right, we are jumping into Ezra chapter 9. We're going to continue our series on God's faithfulness 
in great frustrations. Now, up until now, the book of Ezra has been mostly celebratory. And by the way, there are some Bibles coming around. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We're happy to give you one. And if you need need a Bible, you're happy to, we're happy to give it to you to take to be yours uh, free of charge. We want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. Now, up until now, the book of Ezra has been mostly celebratory. People of Israel have returned after 70 years away in exile. They faithfully prioritize worship of God. There was opposition when they came into the land. Uh, Enemies of God tried to stop the progress, and sometimes, for a time, they succeeded. Ezra 4.4 called these enemies the peoples of the land. And they were discouraging. They were persistent, but ultimately, God prevailed. God was faithful. The temple was built. They worshiped together. It's a great celebration in the beginning of this book. We've met several godly people who are guided by the word of God. One of them was Ezra. We met him a couple of weeks ago in Ezra chapter 7. And do you remember what the narrator said of Ezra? Ezra 7 verse 10. Let's just glimpse at this quickly. He said, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, And to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's one of my favorite Bible verses. I I try to embody this in my own teaching and my own life and ministry. It's a great formula for all of us, isn't it? Ezra set his heart, number one, to study the law of the Lord. Number two, to practice it, to live it out. And only then, after he studied it, after he's lived it, he starts to teach it and preach it. Study, practice, teach in that order. It's a great formula for any Bible teachers in here. Ezra was a godly guy. He was the right person to lead these people in godliness forward at this time, rebuilding the land because he was a man of the word. And under Ezra's leadership, we see this second return to the land. They bring Levites and they bring priests and they bring people in charge of worship. They are prioritizing the right things. It's a great start, isn't it? It's almost as if the judgment and the refining fires of exile have worked to cure the people of their rebellion against God. Almost. Because as we read, Ezra chapter 9 picks up just a few months after the second wave of exiles return to the land. And here's what we hear. Ezra 9, 1 and 2. Now when these things had been completed... The princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. According to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Just about every sentence of those two verses is tragic. It needs some unpacking to make sure we understand what's going on. The text starts off, now when these things had been completed... These things refers to the events of the last couple of chapters. The second wave of Israelites return to the land. They begin to settle in the land. They're worshiping together. And then after all of that, after a few months of settling in, the few, a few of the officials approach Ezra. 
They call them together for a meeting. And I and imagine it's one of those, hey, can we go grab a cup of coffee kind of meetings. Those kind of meetings can go one of two ways, right? This meeting does not go the pleasant way. They say to Ezra, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, they have not, they have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Now, before I get into what that means, I want you to notice who this concerns. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites. Do you remember Ezra chapter 7 and chapter 8? Ezra starts his return to the land and he suddenly stops and he looks around and he's like, there are not enough religious people with us. There's not enough Levites. There's not enough priests. And, and if we want to prioritize God's worship at the temple in the right way, we need more priests than Levites. These are the worship leaders of Ezra's day that we're talking about here. These are the pastors. These are the elders. These are the leaders in religious assemblies. These are the ones who are supposed to lead the people of God in godliness. And instead, what we find is that they are leading the people of God in sin. This is a devastating turn of events in Ezra. The people of God were able to overcome the opposition that they faced from the outside but clearly they were not able to overcome the opposition from within themselves. They were not able to overcome the opposition of sin. The judgment of exile did not ultimately cure anything in their hearts. Now, what exactly is the nature of the problem we see here? What are these people actually confessing to Ezra? In order to understand that, we've got to go a little bit further back in the Old Testament. We need to look at some of the commands of Moses. Let's start with the command in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage. As you turn there, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about this. Deuteronomy is a book all about the law. In fact, that's what the name of Deuteronomy means, second law. Moses is standing before the second generation of Israelites. He's, he's ready to go home to be with the Lord very soon. He's giving his last couple of sermons before them. And as he's preaching, he's kind of laying down the law and giving the people the reminders that God wanted them to know right before they step into the promised land. Now, Deuteronomy 7 starts like this. Look at verses 1 to 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So God says to Israel, when you get into the land, drive out those pagan nations. Separate yourselves from them. Don't intermarry with them. Why? Well, it's not because it was a, a, a racial thing. God's not saying Israelites shouldn't marry Canaanites because of where you're coming from. That wasn't it. God gives the reason in the text. He says, why shouldn't you intermarry? Because they will turn your sons away from following me. The temptation to capitulate to their idolatrous, false, pagan worship is going to be too great if you marry them. And you know what? 
when we get to the New Testament, God gives some very similar commands for people that are considering marriage today. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that we are free to marry whoever we want only in the Lord. That means whoever you want as long as they are Christian just like you. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul warns believers not to be yoked together with unbelievers. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If your faith is the greatest part of your life, if everything else in your life is founded upon your belief in Jesus Christ, it makes sense that that foundation needs to be most important when picking out a spouse. If the foundation is uneven, what hope is there of keeping the house together? Now, I want to briefly qualify that. Uh, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you already are in an uneven marriage, as far as your religions, he says, remain as you are. Stay with your spouse. Lord willing, your godliness will hopefully drive your spouse towards the Lord, and they might know Jesus. The Apostle, Paul, or Apostle Peter says something very similar as well. But the point here to see in Deuteronomy 7 is that God very clearly orders the Israelites, don't marry unbelievers. Separate yourselves from the pagans in the land. In fact, notice how in Ezra 9, the people come to Ezra and actually use the language from Deuteronomy 7 to describe what they're going through. They list all the ites of Deuteronomy 7, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the termites, all of them, right? They add a couple in there. I mean, if we compare the lists, here's what we're going to see. You take a look at the screen again. Five of those eight people groups in Ezra 9 are also found in Deuteronomy 7. But the people in Ezra also add a few. They add the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians. Egyptians, maybe they added that because there's a passage in Leviticus 18 that talks about uh, God's desire for sexual relationships among his people. Things to avoid. And God says, don't be like the Egyptians. Then he gives them a whole list of things the Egyptians do in Leviticus 18. So they add that one in there. They mention the, the Ammonites and the Moabites probably because that comes from another passage of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23 says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Ammonites and the Moabites were kind of viewed as like the worst of the worst because of what they did to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. They were related by blood, and yet they treated them like enemies. So God says, have nothing to do with them. Stay away from them. Now, it's important also to mention here, a lot of these people didn't even exist in Ezra's time. Some of them have already been wiped off the face of the earth by the Babylonian invasion. If you study the language of the text carefully, the Israelites, they actually acknowledge this. They say, we have done like the abominations of the Canaanites and all the others. Even though some of these groups no longer existed, what the Israelites were doing was in violation of the spirit of the laws of Deuteronomy. So do you see the problem now? The leaders of Israel come up to Ezra and they quote Deuteronomy 7, they quote Deuteronomy 23, and they say, we have violated the law of God. Those passages that say don't intermarry with these people, we intermarried with those people. And what's interesting to me is that their language is packed with religious vocabulary. 
They are quoting scripture left and right in these two verses that we read. They quote and reference those two passages from Deuteronomy. They say the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Some of that language is pulled from the prophet Isaiah. They use words like abomination, words like faithlessness. Those are key words in the law of Moses. These are words that are used in the Torah to describe the idolatrous practices of the pagans in the land. Words that were associated with idolatry and apostasy and child sacrifice and prostitution and other horrible sins. So after studying scripture, they get back in the land, they look at the word of God, and they come to the conclusion, we have royally messed up. And here we are, back in the promised land. The temple is up and running. We've got the land packed with religious leaders. I mean, they should be getting a fresh start with a renewed focus, a desire to follow God, and what have they done? The leaders have led the way in sin. The priests and the Levites, those who are supposed to be known for being set apart, have not set themselves apart. They say, indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been the foremost in this unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness, by the way, that's another covenant term from the law. They have broken covenant with God by intermarrying with unbelievers. What hope do the people of God have? I mean, if a guy like Ezra can't bring about lasting reform in God's people, what hope do the people of God actually have? Ezra was the best of the best. He was the cream of the crop. He was like the new Moses coming in. He's in the word of God. He's living the word of God. He's teaching the word of God. He is the ideal candidate for any church pastorate. And yet, if even he cannot bring about reform, then who can? You see, church, we need a better Ezra. We have a better Ezra. We call him Jesus. More on that thought in a minute. Let's summarize a little before we move on. The returned exiles have intermarried with pagan foreigners. They've broken God's law by not separating themselves from the sin in the land. The leaders are the the ones supposed to be most holy are the ones that are foremost in this offense. And Ezra is given this problem right as he steps in the land. Welcome back, Ezra. (laughs) Good luck sorting that one out. I mean, this is a heavy issue. Riverstone elders, be grateful this was not on your agenda yesterday in your meeting or tomorrow night in your meeting. So what does Ezra do? Look at verses 3 and 4. Back in Ezra 9, 3 and 4. Ezra says, When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe And I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and and I sat appalled until the evening offering. These are some of the saddest words in Scripture here. This is the proper reaction of a spiritual leader faced with gross immoral sin. Twice the text says it. He was appalled. That word appalled is a Hebrew word that's usually translated elsewhere to become desolate, ruined, 
devastated. He's, he's using a term that would describe the exile to describe himself. It was like he was suffering his own mini exile here. And it's important to understand Ezra is not just throwing a mini temper tantrum here. He's not a five-year-old who doesn't get his way, so he starts tearing his clothes and hair and kicking the wall. What he's doing, these are typical reactions of, of a mourner in the ancient Near East, somebody who is weeping at a funeral. This is how people would react when someone in the community died. They would rend their garments. They would pull their hair. They would sometimes put sackcloth and ashes on themselves. By his actions, Ezra is saying, we are dead. Or at least we deserve the judgment of death. And he sits there on the ground in an absolute mess, mourning the spiritual death of his people. And a few godly ones, they gather around him to mourn with him. And he sits there, he's mourning his people until the evening offering. So most likely several hours he's there like this. And then look at what happens in verse 5. He says, But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. So Ezra gets up, but just barely, in tattered garments. I mean, he doesn't go and put on nice church clothes. He doesn't pretend to be someone he's not. His clothes match his mood. He falls on his knees again. He stretches out his hands to God and he prays. And the rest of this chapter is Ezra's prayer. We're going to read it. We're going to study it. But I want you to know we're not going to solve this problem of intermarriage until next week. That's Pastor Austin's job. <laughs> he gets the heavy lifting next week. But the rest of this chapter is Ezra's prayer of remorse and repentance on behalf of his people. And this prayer is very informative for us as Christians in our lives. We can learn a lot from listening to godly people pray. So listen in, verse 6. And I said, this is Ezra speaking, I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Just pause there for a minute. Can you hear the heart of Ezra in those words? He does not pray like a pompous Pharisee, all puffy with religious words and filled with self-righteousness. His heart is broken. He's ashamed. He's embarrassed. He says, our sins have risen above our heads, reaching to the heavens. It's, it's like his sin has been piling up and up and up, and now he feels like he is drowning in it. But I want you to notice something. Notice something so important, something that you're going to see throughout the rest of this prayer. Notice the way Ezra uses his pronouns. Our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our guilt has grown to the heavens. Do you notice that? He's not saying their iniquities, their sins. He's saying ours, including me. What's fascinating about that is that Ezra was not one of the people who intermarried with a pagan woman. You know how I know that? Because next week in Ezra chapter 10, Pastor Austin is going to read a long list of names. A list of the offenders of Ezra 9. A list of all the people who married pagan foreigners, and guess what? Ezra is nowhere on that list. 
By the way, just as a little aside, I am so excited. Pastor Austin has a list of long names to read <laughs> next week. I mean, he started me off preaching here on Ezra chapter 2, over 100 names. I had a whole sermon of names. Then Don Cheney came and preached, and he had a long list of names. Uh, Pastor Jeremy preached. He had a long list of names. Keith Plummer preached. He had like four verses. I don't know if someone owed you a favor or something, Keith, or what, but I mean, you got off pretty easy. So I am excited that Pastor Austin gets to preach one of those passages. I am going to be sitting here eagerly checking his pronunciation through the whole thing. It's going to be, it's going to be great. But the point is, in that long list of names coming up, Ezra's not there. He did not intermarry. He stayed pure. He's a godly man. And yet, don't miss this church. Yet he prays as if it's his own sin. We're going to see that kind of focus through this entire passage. Ezra confesses the sins of his people as if it is his own. That is a really weird concept for us as Americans. Because we are so individualistically minded, aren't we? We are the center of our own world. We are not corporately minded. And yet, I think this concept resonates in some areas of our lives. I hate to break it to you, but the Phillies did not win the World Series. You know what many Phillies fans said last week? They said, we lost. We, not they, but we lost. We understand this concept of identifying with our sports teams, even though we weren't the ones who failed to hit the ball, we weren't the ones who dropped the ball or dropped the catch or whatever. It wasn't us, and yet we talk like it's us, right? That's what Ezra's doing, except with the sins of his people. Our country is very divided right now. There's an us versus them mentality, isn't there? In the so-called United States today. Republicans hate the Democrats. Democrats hate the Republicans. The Libertarians hate everyone. Can you imagine, instead of calling down hatred upon our political rivals, that instead we prayed confessionally on their behalf? Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face up to you, for our sins have risen above our heads. We have cheapened the institution of marriage. We are guilty of marring the image of God by pretending that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. We are guilty of murdering babies in the womb. We are guilty of normalizing abhorrent sexual practices like homosexuality. What if we prayed like that? Do you know why we can pray like that? We can pray like that when we have a gospel focus. Here's what I mean. When we recognize that the first step of the gospel is that we are all sinners in need of a savior. They might struggle with those sins, but we are no better for we are all sinners in need of a savior. Our sin has led us to this place. This is a spiritually dying generation that we live in. And the fault rests squarely on the shoulders of those who have failed to raise this generation in Christ. If we stand far off from those sinners and pretend like we have risen above them in our own personal righteousness, then we fail to embrace the very first foundational pillar of the gospel itself. We become like 
that Pharisee in Luke's gospel, I thank you, God, that I'm not like those other sinners. Rather, church, may we stand here like Ezra and like that sinner in the same story in Luke's gospel, standing some distance away, unable to even look up his eyes towards heaven, beating his breast and crying out, God, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Godly prayers recognize our sinfulness before God. That's our starting point. Godly prayers identify with other sinners in our generation, whether we've done it or not. Let's read on and see how these themes continue to rise to the surface in Ezra's prayer. Look at verse 7. Listen to his language. He says, Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. You see, Ezra is not just realizing that this sin is generational, but it's been going on since the beginning. Nothing has changed. People have always been in rebellion against God. Notice again the we, the our language. We have been in great guilt on account of our iniquities. But he's not just saying in this generation. He's saying all the generations in the past. My full-time job is an Old Testament professor. That's my forte. I teach my Old Testament students that if we read the Old Testament and we walk away saying, I would never be like one of those Israelites. I would never be as sinful as them then we have missed the point. Rather, we should be reading the generational sins of God's people and realize that we are no better. That's why we can pray corporately. We can identify with sins that we haven't committed ourselves personally. We can realize that our righteousness has not risen above theirs. We can pray in in generational terms. We are just like those past generations. We all need Jesus Christ. But praise the Lord, Ezra goes on, he says in verses 8 and 9, but now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God, praise God, to leave us an escaped remnant, to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra recognizes the grace of God. His first step was recognizing the terrible sinfulness of the people. We are unfaithful, O God. And then he recognizes the faithfulness and the grace and the blessings of his heavenly father. Despite the sinfulness of the people, God has shown Israel grace. That's the gospel. He's praying gospel language here, isn't he? He says, God, you have kept us alive. You've allowed a remnant, a peg to stay in the land. And and he's using, again, biblical language, digging up from the prophet Isaiah, pulling those references where God promises to keep Israel alive, even in the punishment of exile. He says, you've granted us some relief from this. But notice what he says in verse 9. He says, we are slaves. That's an interesting thing to say for a guy who just came back from 70 years of exile and has freedom in his land again. We are slaves. 
God has granted the Israelites relief from bondage, and yet, he says, from his perspective, we are still slaves. He recognizes even in our freedom, even in the return from exile, we are still slaves because exile is not over spiritually. As long as the Israelites keep returning to their sin as a dog returns to its vomit, the people are still spiritual slaves in need of a savior. So again, Ezra recognizes the sinfulness of the people before God. He recognizes God's faithfulness and God's grace despite our sin. He uses biblical language as he prays. His prayers are informed by the promises of scripture. By the way, notice we're about halfway through this prayer. He has not asked God for a single thing, has he? No requests. He's just pouring his heart out to God. God, we are sinners and you are faithful. That's all you see so far. He continues on in verses 10 to 12. He says, Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleannesses of the peoples of the land, with their abominations, which have filled it from end to end with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. Ezra is very upfront with God. He's not hiding in, in his sin. He's not sugarcoating what he has done. He doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't rationalize and say, well, here's why the people did what they did. He's upfront. He's quoting scripture all over the place. Quotes Deuteronomy 7 again. He quotes from Deuteronomy 23. He says, this is what you said, God. This is what we've done. Now, I've alluded to this already, but I just want to be clear about this. One of the marks of godly prayers in Scripture is that godly people pray Scripture. Let me say that again. Godly people pray Scripture. We see this in Ezra's prayer. If you study any other prayers of Scripture, you'll see the same thing. We see it, we're going to see it later in Nehemiah's prayer. We're going to see it in David's prayers. We're going to see it, we see it in Daniel's prayers. We see it in Mary's prayer. We see it all over. Godly people pray Scripture. They allow the words of the Bible to inform the way and the things for which they pray. Now let me explain that in some very practical terms to you. Some two things that have really helped me understand and kind of live that out as much as I can. First thing, long time ago, I was a student at Philadelphia Biblical University, now Karen University, and I was in a class with my Greek professor. Some of you might know him. His name is Tom Allen. I call him Professor Allen. Many of you call him Pastor Tom. During that class, Pastor Tom recommended me a book that changed my prayer life. It's a book called Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. Write it down. Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. Each chapter studies one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul and highlights the kinds of things that Paul prayed for. It's, it's a book that's packed with great theology, great application, great work in the text. And I found after reading it, I started praying for people differently. In fact, what I did was I started memorizing a few of Paul's prayers and praying those prayers over people in my life. It radically changed the way I started to pray. Thank you, Pastor Tom. Second, another way I found it helpful to use biblical prayers to shape and direct my own prayer life. A couple years ago, as part of my devotions in the morning, I prayed through the Psalms. For half a year, I took a Psalm each day 
And I used that psalm as a template for what and how I should pray. I literally prayed the psalms out loud. I would personalize them a little bit so the language fit with what I was praying. But I used those psalms as a model for my prayer life. It was awesome. It was incredible. I'd highly recommend it. Psalm 23. So Psalm 23 says, Lord, you are my shepherd, I shall not want. And I would get on my knees in the morning and I would pray, Lord, you are my shepherd and I shall not want. And I would meditate on those words and I would pray them and I would think about them, memorize many of them. Ezra prays scripture back to God. He's not cherry picking passages to make himself look good. He knows we've messed up. He knows we've broken covenant with God. And, and he recognizes that based on the words of God that he's broken. And he reflects on that in his language. But he contrasts that sinfulness with God's grace and God's faithfulness. He does it again in verses 13 to 15. Listen to how he ends his prayer. He says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? Oh, Yahweh, God of Israel, you are righteous. For we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Amen. That's how the prayer ends. There is no request. There is no, Lord, please do this or that. It is a deep, heartfelt confession of sin. It's a brokenness before God, and it's a clear recognition of God's goodness and grace and faithfulness despite our sin. He says, you have given us less than our iniquities deserve. In other words, exile wasn't enough. God could have wiped them off the face of the planet, and he would have been righteous in doing so. But God loved them enough to show them grace that they did not earn. They did not deserve it. They could not work for it. Ezra recognizes the sins that his people have committed. These are the same kinds of sins that led them into exile in the first place. Nothing has changed. They went into exile sinners. They come back from exile as sinners. They need a savior. Ezra was not enough for them. The faith of Ezra, you see, was not in his own righteousness. His faith was not in his own ability to study God's word. His faith was not in his own ability to reform the people. His faith was placed in God with a sharp awareness of his own need for grace and repentance. We need to be like Ezra in that sense. What Ezra needed was the gospel. His people needed Jesus. They needed a savior to break them free from the never-ending cycle of rebellion and sin. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Remember this passage? He says, wretched man that I am, who will break me free from this body of death? Remember what the answer is? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What have we seen in this text? Again, the problem of intermarriage isn't solved yet. Ezra doesn't offer a solution. The people don't offer a solution. We'll see all that next week. I mean, we men, we want to solve problems first. Think about it later, right? We're problem solvers. That's what we do. But Ezra doesn't offer any suggestions. He doesn't say, here's what I think we should do. He first drops to his knees in prayer. 
I don't know what your leadership meetings are like here at Riverstone, but I would ask how often do you just pause before discussing a big issue and you pray? I don't know what your marriages are like and how you solve problems within them, but how often have you said, you know what, before we really get heated in this discussion, let's just take a moment and drop to our knees and pray. I don't know what your work like, life is like, how you face a day of work, but when you encounter crisis after crisis, instead of jumping to solutions, first jump to your Savior and pray. I think it was uh, Martin Luther who is said to have spent two hours a day in prayer each morning to start his day, except on days when he had a lot to do, then he would spend three hours in prayer. What a great model for us. But what have we seen? Let me summarize for you just three principles that we've encountered already just to help wrap some of this up. Principle number one, godly prayers recognize our sinfulness. That's the starting point of the gospel. That's the starting point of our prayers. It's a generational recognition of our sin. We are no better than anyone that came before us. We are sinners too. It's a, it's a recognition corporately of our sin. We are no better from the other people in this world right now that are sinning that we see out there. Even if we don't participate in the craziness of the society, even if we are not the ones mutilating our kids or legalizing drugs or normalizing drag shows, we pray corporately. It is our sin to help us God. That kind of prayer takes humility. It takes a sharp awareness of the gospel. I would encourage you to try it tonight. Get on your knees. Try it tonight for the sins of our nation. Pray for sins of our past generation. Pray like it was you who did these things. And see how God might use that in your heart to transform the way you think about your own sin and the way that you think about others. But don't stop there. Principle number two, godly prayers recognize God's faithfulness and grace. We've got to remember the other side of the gospel. For the wages of sin is death, but... Say it with me, church. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't come before God demanding that he bless us. We don't come before God touting our own righteousness. We come with a humble recognition of our sin. We seek forgiveness and we recognize his gracious gift of a savior in Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. He accomplished what we could not. He was perfectly righteous, and by placing our faith in him and his work and his death and his resurrection, we find forgiveness, we find salvation, and we are justified, made righteous. That is the gospel. So we pray, we recognize our sinfulness before God, we pray and recognize God's faithfulness and God's grace. And third thing we've seen, principle number three, scripture guides godly prayers. Just like Ezra infuses his prayer with Scripture, so we should allow Scripture to guide and inform our prayer life. This doesn't mean that we should try to put on a show. We're, we're not trying to make our language all flowery and holier than thou. But we should make an effort to consider how other godly people in Scripture pray and let that inform how you pray. Look at Paul's prayers. Look at Daniel's prayers. Look at David's prayers. Look at Ezra's prayer and let that challenge the way and how you pray. If this is something new to you, start easy. Start with Ezra 9. Pray it back to God tonight. Consider the sins of this generation and confess them before God. Getting right with God 
starts with praying our wrongs before God. Let's take a moment and close our service by doing just that right now. Let's pray. Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you. Our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our sins have reached the height of the heavens. Lord, since the days of the Old Testament to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our, our leaders, our pastors, our deacons, our ministry heads, Lord, we have been sinning before you. But now for a brief moment, Lord, you have shown us grace. I pray, Lord, that you might enlighten our eyes, that we would recognize the bondage to our sin that we are in, that you might extend to us love and kindness, that you would put your mighty hand upon us and restore what has been broken. Oh, our God, what should we say after all this? We have forsaken your commandments. You have commanded these commandments by your servants, the prophets, and yet, Lord, we have forsaken them. After all that's come upon us for our evil deeds, Lord, our great guilt, you, our God, has given us even less than what we deserve. We have been given life through Jesus Christ. Father, you are righteous. We are sinners. And I pray, Lord, as we stand before you, that we would have a sharp awareness of our sinfulness, of our need for Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you might do a work in us that we cannot do in ourselves. Who will set us free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen.